0: Welcome to the Sociology Channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we're talking with Caitlin Collins, author of Making Motherhood Work How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, can you start us off by
1: telling us about yourself? Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, and I got my PhD in 2016 at the University of Texas at Austin, and I am a sociologist of gender inequality, and I'm interested in how that manifests in both the workplace and in family life.
0: Great. How did this book come about for you?
1: how did this book come about? Well, I have both a, a personal and a professional response to that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the the professional one, let's start there, is that uh, in graduate school, I was really interested in Pamela Stone's work on opting out. Her book that she wrote in 2007, under the same title, fascinated me for this idea that Professional women today tend to be leaving the workforce in droves in ways that, of course, has deleterious outcomes over the course of their lives for their economic independence, their career success, the domestic division of household labor. And I became really interested in, in the discourse itself. Why is it that these women, when they decide to leave work, um, say that this was a choice, that this was a, f- a free and agentic decision to spend more time with their children, when in fact, Pamela Stone suggests in her book that that in fact, these women are por- forced out of the labor force, uh, forced out of workplaces that are bound to traditional models of the ideal worker that again, tend to benefit men as a group and disadvantage women as a group. And I was really curious to see if this discourse of opting out and the quote unquote droves of women who are leaving the professional labor force. Um, I wondered whether this discourse existed in places where They had far more supportive work family policies um, where women were supported in both their uh, caregiving roles and in employment. And this led me to ask the question of what the experiences are for working moms in Germany, a place that historically has placed a great deal of value on Caregiving labor, and specifically on mothers being at home with their kids, um, taking care of them, and so uh, that started the project. And uh, on a personal <laughs> level, the the motivation to pursue this project came about um, as a result of watching my own mom struggle a lot to balance her responsibilities uh, as a you know successful, high achieving corporate sales and marketing director, and uh, she struggled a lot when I was a kid. And I remember growing up and thinking to myself that there has got to be a better way for us to go about organizing this so that women like my mom don't struggle so much. And she eventually, after my parents divorced, uh, tried to do you know the bulk of caregiving as well as continue in this high-flying career for a number of years until she decided she'd had enough and she couldn't take it. And she quit and um, pursued a job in consulting that was part-time Lacked benefits whatsoever, and paid far less, but it gave her the flexibility she wanted. And so that sort of decision, to me, seems so much like a forced choice. This same decision that Pamela Stone also being referred to as a you know a forced one rather than a freely chosen one, that um, I was really curious in a cross national comparison. And and when I began digging into the topic um, during my dissertation, what I learned is that of course we've got a great deal of statistical and demographic research understanding the influence of work family policies on all sorts of demographic outcomes like maternal labor force participation, on fertility, um, on, for example, hours spent on domestic work. And so we know about the structures of the policies and we know a lot about the outcomes, but we know very little about what it's like to be a working mom on the ground day to day in places that have very different cultural attitudes about Gender and work and caregiving, and similarly, very different uh, work-family policies. So that uh, is how the cross-national qualitative study was
0: born. Mm -hmm. Great. Can you actually tell us a little bit more about your methods? Sure.
1: So I conducted in-depth interviews with middle-class working mothers in Sweden, in Germany, in Italy, and in the United States from 2011 to 2015, and. My decision to speak to middle class women was uh, in part theoretical and part of it was also by necessity. So when I first began the project in Germany, uh, I was hoping to speak to women across the socioeconomic spectrum. And what I found was that, of course, there were language barriers to my ability to recruit and conduct interviews. Um, But also women, even when I found a translator willing to work with me, women didn't have a lot of interest in talking to me. And I also learned that um, lower income women who weren't able to speak English with me um, and who I wasn't able to speak to in their native language, uh, yeah, didn't seem to profess a whole lot of interest, which I could understand because I don't have the ability to explain my motivation, my rationale, who I am, what the study is about, you know, and uh, I get that completely. And on top of that, I realized that even though I had a translator willing to work with me to translate from German into English, what we realized is that if I wanted to speak to truly women who in the U.S. we would consider to be analogous in terms of um, being low income, living in poverty, those women um, in the context of Germany very often don't speak German either. They speak Turkish or they speak Arabic. And both uh, time and resources prevented me from being able to recruit more interviews, uh, interview, you know, assistance by way of translators to help with that. So uh, it became in part, uh, by necessity, this, as I mentioned, a project of the experiences of middle-class working mothers. And I use a similar justification like Pamela Stone to help rationalize uh this from a theoretical perspective this is sort of one of those how the sausage gets made (laughs) conversations about the book uh and the reality there is that um pamela stone and other folks like mary blair Loy and and others who have investigated the experiences of working moms who are sort of at the middle or upper echelons of the socioeconomic structure um often use this discourse of um Women serving as sort of canaries in a coal mine at this part of um, the social structure. So these women have the resources and the networks to be able to ameliorate their work family conflict by, for example, outsourcing things like housekeeping or uh, caring labor, right? Um, And they also have other networks of similarly resourced people to help support them. And if these women are struggling, it is very likely the case that the difficulties for low income mothers, for example, um, immigrant mothers are many times over uh, magnified. And not only that, they might just have very different uh, experiences entirely. And the bulk of the gender, work, and family literature tends to focus on middle-class families. And um, you know, you and I, as members of, of the Work and Family Researchers Network, uh, have a lot of, um, I think, similar perspectives about the field. And I don't want to speak for you, of course, Sarah, but I think, um, <laughs> but I think. it's interesting that it's focused primarily on middle-class families, um, this body of literature in general. And I think um, as a bit of an aside, we're at a really interesting and exciting and also really important time in the subfield that um, I think it's time that we sort of have a very deep sort of intersectional reckoning (laughs) um, by involving scholars of race and scholars of poverty who also study families to also be engaged like I think I want all of us to think of ourselves as folks who study gender and work and family. And there's been a bit of a, a siloing effect going on in which I think is, um, um, detrimental to our research. And I, uh, anyway, I, I feel in some ways like, um, I've perpetuated the problem, but I do think that, um, conducting these interviews with women across countries is a novel perspective. And, and you had asked about my methods and this sort of cross-national qualitative approach is a bit new. So, uh, new, new insofar as there aren't a ton of people doing qualitative work, um, across countries like this. We've got a few folks doing amazing work. Um, for example, on the other hand, we also have European scholars, for example, um, Daniela Grunau and Marie Evertson just published a great edited volume where each chapter is written by native born researchers on the topic of dual earning couples with children. And the book, has, as I mentioned, native-born researchers conducting interviews in their native language and then writing the book in English. And I think that's another really cool uh, research methodology. It's just very different. So um, I think there's something quite beneficial about being the same interviewer across uh, field sites that I can um, ask interview questions in the same way. I can follow up with similarly phrased probing questions. Uh, You know, I can myself observe their interactions with their colleagues and their partners and their kids and their friends. Um, And that's really valuable. And I found it very valuable in the context of writing this book to have been the same person across the field sites. So for what it's worth, here's my plug for um, more folks conducting this sort of cross-national qualitative research on, on work and family.
0: Yeah, I thought the the methodology appendix was really interesting um, and really useful if somebody was considering this type of work in the future. Um, but you start off the book with uh, the first chapter is actually titled the SOS. So I was hoping you could talk more about what you see this SOS being um, in terms of like these policies as a reflection of what is valued, basically.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the, the U.S. has the most family hostile public policy of any country. In the Western industrialized world, and we have, for example, uh, no paid parental leave for one of two countries on the planet that doesn't have paid maternity leave. Um, it's just us in Papua New Guinea. Um, <laughs> we have no federal minimum standard for vacation or sick days. We have no universal child care system, no universal health care system. Um, you know the the policies that we do have are meager and they're very patchwork in nature and they're often means tested for the very poorest citizens of the U.S. and this means that families across the socioeconomic spectrum are struggling to manage both careers and caregiving or employment and caregiving, not just careers, of course. And um, to me, the title SOS really embodies this idea that women today are drowning in stress as they try to to navigate both employment and motherhood um, for those who decide to have kids. And without um, policies to help support them in these dual endeavors, what we see are rampant um, and excruciating levels of work-family conflict, of stress, um, of women like Pamela Stone found dropping out of the labor force. Um, And that's deeply problematic for uh, those interested in the study uh, of gender equality if we want to further the status uh, of women and their advancement in society it matters that we don't support them in in their caring roles or encourage men to participate equally in them and so here in the US we're a bit of an outlier because much of the western industrialized world has much more progressive work family policies those either though these are based on very different Western welfare models about how we go about supporting um, our citizens in the act of social reproduction. And as a liberal welfare state here in the US, um, this suggests that we encourage families to turn to the market to provide for their families when in need, and um, again, as I said, we've got a meager, meager social safety net aimed for the very poorest citizens who are unable to secure what they need in the market. But again, this means families are framed as a private or personal or individual responsibility, and this has again disastrous consequences for for families. And in the context of the U.S., where breadwinning and masculinity are, um, are tied very closely, but caregiving and masculinity are considered quite opposed. This means that women end up doing the bulk of caring labor necessary for their families to both survive and thrive. Um, and of course that has, uh, very detrimental consequences to their ability to participate in the paid labor force. So SOS is really in my mind, um, indicative of this larger national problem, what I call a national crisis in the book of work-family conflict for mothers. It's uh, not an issue solely for middle-class moms, not solely one for uh, women of color or anything. This is spans region. It spans religion. It spans race and class. Um, it spans sexual orientation. It spans family models. It spans parental status, right? It's not just folks who have children who are struggling with their work and family lives. Folks who have... Um, The need to care for ailing or elderly parents, for example, or even those who don't have kids or ailing parents, but, you know, aren't robots and have themselves to care for, for example, dentist appointments, doctor's appointments, um, those sorts of things require some flexibility uh, on the job. And we have a very inflexible uh, labor market positions today are still structured around this ideal worker model that privileges folks who are all in, all committed and all dedicated to their jobs and again this tends to generally benefit men and disadvantage women. So again, there in my mind is a national crisis and when I when I give talks about the book and I ask the audience to 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 let me know, to raise their hands if this resonates for them, this description of women being overwhelmed by stress and exhaustion and uh, the hectic pace of life these days, uh, I ask audience members to raise their hands if this resonates with anyone in their lives, whether that's them or a loved one, uh, a coworker, a friend. And usually 100% of the audience raises their hands, which to me signals, again, that this is quite an epidemic. And um, I'm not a scholar of health, but I uh, am very eager to read the studies that are coming out these days on the long-term effects of this chronic level of stress and work-family conflict that we know has, you know, physical, physiological consequences for people's well-being over the life course. And um, so anyway, I'm very excited about that research, but I think mine points to the fact that we do need more, um, probably more, studies that highlight the detrimental nature of this on our physical health, on our bodies, on our longevity, um, on our ability to reproduce, for example. And so um, I'm seeing really interesting work in that area, um, and it's fun to be engaged with those scholars too.
0: Thank you. So you start off with the gold standard of policy, uh, Sweden. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) what I found interesting about this chapter is you actually have a few respondents that laugh at you when you use the phrase working mother. So I was hoping you could talk to us about Sweden.
1: Happily. Yeah. So Sweden, excuse me, Sweden is an interesting case. It's often held up as, as you said, the gold standard for work family policy and also for labor policy generally, and also gender equality policy. Um, And in fact, as you said, women did laugh when I used the phrase working mother during our conversations in, in Stockholm when I conducted interviews there. And women often laughed um, or sort of sighed or chuckled under their breaths, And I would stop because, you know, being the dutiful interviewer that I am, we know that those are uh, significant moments in conversations with folks as we were interviewing them. And I would follow up and, and ask, you know, oh, why are, why are you laughing? Or why are you smiling? Why um, Why did that make you pause? And women would say to me that the phrase working mother isn't something that even exists in the Swedish language. This is a bit of an anomaly for them to even hear the phrase because they don't know adult women who aren't working mothers. If you are an adult who's a woman, you generally speaking have children and you work and you usually work full time. And so they don't have the analogous stay at home mom, Phrase either. And when I asked women if they knew anyone who was a stay at home network in any of their networks, no matter how distant, only a couple of women said they did. And it was interestingly, often very, very wealthy uh, women who were married. And very often they were women who were married to uh, folks either working for American firms or married to Americans, which I found fascinating. So the cultural model of being a stay at home parent is just. kind of unavailable and moot in the Swedish context because their welfare state encourages all parents not only to participate in the labor force full-time, but also to have kids. And so um, it's very likely the case, though I didn't interview them, that folks who decide not to have children end up being quite stigmatized in this model. And um, in fact, I interviewed a couple of single moms and they said that in fact, yes, that they they realized that the the family models available to couples kind of culturally in Sweden tend to be based around this dual earner, dual carer model. And even as a single mom, she said if she wanted to work part-time or not at all to support her child, that wasn't a possibility for her because the cost of living and what it takes to raise herself and her son uh, was demanded both uh, full-time employment on her part, but also her engagement with, for example, the you know very robust childcare system they have in Sweden. And of course, that's a good thing. But it's a good thing only if what you want is to work full-time and um, and quote unquote take advantage of this generous uh, welfare system that is meant to help reconcile work and family for women. And women did tell me, indeed, that they did feel that their employment and caregiving responsibilities were compatible, which I found astounding because it differed so much from the US context. But uh, indeed, it does privilege this one um, model of work and family life. And I end the book in the conclusion by drawing on um, sociologist Ann Orloff's work from Northwestern, who published a really interesting piece that really changed my way of thinking about all of this um, called Not Every Feminist's Utopia. And the article is about the reality that not all women do want to have children and work full time and nor do men and what it means to have a truly feminist utopia by way of the welfare state would mean to materially support and culturally accept uh, a, a wide range of options for combining work and family or not, and uh, a variety of decisions as it relates to engaging in paid work and in family life. And um, she, I think she's exactly right that the social democratic welfare model that relies on um, you know the full labor force participation of their citizens and residents, as well as having kids, it has indeed reconciled work and family. It has increased maternal labor force participation rates. It has increased fertility, though some And some say not up to replacement level. Um, This negates the possibility of other, you know, family forms and work and family combinations. Um, And I would agree with her that I think, again, this is not every feminist utopia, but the women in Sweden that I did interview who did decide to work and who did decide to have kids reported being incredibly happy um, and content with their lives. Though something I found fascinating about the Swedish context was that these women, Still were able to identify places where they felt they deserved more support and more um, uh, material benefits to help reinforce their ability to combine work and motherhood so for example, Swedish parental leave is paid out at roughly eighty percent wage replacement, and as a result of collective bargaining and union agreements, this often gets boosted up to ninety or one hundred percent, but not for all women and women were quite disappointed when they um, took leave and realized that they in fact were effectively getting a pay cut for that period of time um, and that matters a lot and women told me that they thought quote the quote that sticks in my mind is them saying that's a really really big dip in income and that makes me laugh of course because as an American, you know, most folks are accustomed to receiving no paid leave whatsoever, um, and so any any reimbursement for their time away seems like a big deal in the U.S. context. But they were frustrated at the uh, gap, right? That they were only being paid out at eighty percent. And to me, this was fascinating because it's indicative of, in the German context, the reality that they're. Is an expectation that men and employers and the government will support women in their breadwinning and caregiving, and this expectation, this this discourse of rights that they are entitled to support, is written into their welfare law, and it's in fact exactly what men and employers and the government tend to do, which I find fascinating.
0: So then you move on to the former East Germany, um, and here you point out, you know, that the history really here is fascinating. Um, because women were born under a socialist welfare regime, so it was normalized to be a working mother. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about that context. Sure.
1: <clears throat> so, so Germany is such an interesting case. The next two chapters of the book um, are focused on former East Germany and Western Germany, and this internal comparison is a really fascinating one to me because, as you pointed out, um, when the country separated into the you know two. Countries formerly the GDR and um, at the time former Western Germany they they had two very different welfare state models and um, under the forty years of the GDR when it served as a socialist country what that mean was that what that meant was that maternal employment was more or less required that uh, they had universal childcare systems that were quite robust it was normal for women to put their kids in daycare facilities at six to eight weeks old and they were still expected to do the bulk of um, domestic tasks around the home. And so women participated fully in the labor force from very early on. Um, They got married at young ages, generally speaking. And part of what it meant to be a good uh, East German citizen at the time was to have a lot of kids and to work a lot um, and for women to to keep a nice home at the same time. And men were more or less absolved of that responsibility um, in the sort of traditional model of uh, what it means to breadwin for the home as a man. Um, And at the exact same time in Western Germany, their policies continued to privilege a male breadwinner and female caregiver family model. And this has been the case for decades there under uh, what we often refer to as a conservative welfare state regime. Um, And what happened interestingly overnight um, in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, was that all of these social institutions and policies from Western Germany, these traditional model, the traditional model of family life and work-family policies that supported uh, a stay-at-home caregiver and a breadwinning father, um, these policies were more or less exported into former East Germany and mandated so that almost overnight, these women were then uh, encouraged to stay home with their kids, they were encouraged to work only part time. And all of this was brand new. It was like they woke up with a very different understanding of what it meant to be, you know, a good mother in quotes, of course. And This had a really interesting effect on the women that I spoke to even 25 years later when the Berlin Wall had been down for decades. um, Women there told me that they didn't feel guilty at all for working outside the home, that it was expected, it was normal, that it was tied to their economic independence and their own well-being. Um, But women, interestingly, about two-thirds of the women I spoke to in Berlin said that they weren't aiming for high careers or ambitious careers and in some interesting way, it seems tied to their idea that what it means to be a good mom is to still maintain primary allegiance to your family and, of course, work outside the home, but there's no need to climb um, you know, a career ladder in the way that would require familial sacrifices. So the discourse that moms need to privilege their families over their jobs um, definitely seemed to be the case in Berlin. And, and for the roughly one-third of women I interviewed there who did have... Uh, what they professed to be sort of ambitious career um, prospects, they felt very stigmatized as a result of it. Some women told me that they were often criticized by their friends, by older generations, by relatives, um, for mentioning that what they really wanted to do was pursue a job, use the robust system available to support their um, ability to raise their families, for example, by enrolling their kids in daycare full time. Um, But they felt stigmatized for that. And that did disadvantage those women, dramatically. They were seen in the workplace as um, perhaps being in some ways kind of improper women because they weren't fully committed to their families. And on the flip side, at home, this idea that they spent, for example, um, much of their day in the office rather than at home, meant that people called into question their abilities as good mothers. Um, And to me, this this was really heartbreaking. It worked really well for those women who wanted to work, for example, part-time, who had pursued, you know, careers and wanted to be able to work and uh, combine that with family responsibilities simultaneously. They could do that pretty seamlessly, but they had a harder time doing that culturally when they aimed for very ambitious careers. And on the flip side in in Western Germany, in the next chapter of the book, um, they tended to feel incredibly stigmatized for working at all outside the home when their kids were young. And this was, in fact, reinforced through the, the conservative welfare state model of um, only providing, for example, childcare facilities for kids at, starting at the age of three, whereas uh, paid parental leave went for three years at the time, which, again, to me is a pretty... Clear message from the German government about what they expect families to be doing, which is to have a parent at home for the first three years of their kids' lives before enrolling them in in public childcare facilities. Um, they also, you know, um, they also grant insurance and benefits to an economically inactive wife of a breadwinning husband with kids. So the whole model was set up to really, again materially support the caring labor um, that we all know is required of families, but again, it was deeply feminized. So it was the understanding that women would step back from work and stay at home. And when I interviewed women in Western Germany, they in fact uh, taught me a term that exists in the German language that didn't exist in the English language, um, and that's the, the word Rabenmutter or raven mother. Um, this is a word in the German language that is meant to suggest when women are called raven mothers that they are bad or selfish mothers who fly away from the nest to pursue a career and abandon their kids effectively. And women told me that they were called raven mothers to their faces by other folks. That could be, uh, you know, their little kids' friends' parents on the playground, um, also folks of older generations often, and very many times stay-at-home moms. And these women felt really guilty for combining work and family and for having career ambition. Um, they felt, again, criticized at home for working outside the home, especially when their kids are young. And they felt guilty at work and unable to sort of commit themselves to this ideal worker model that's tended to prevail in, in work environments there that said, you need to be all in. And so yes, there are a great deal of white collar jobs available part time in Germany, which is great. But these are generally meant for folks whose kids are older, definitely meant for women. um, And they don't tend to have the same, you know, trajectories as we know, full time jobs tend to have. And so women there felt a great deal of stress, and work family conflict. Um, Some of this really felt internalized, they Insisted to me that working made them a better mother, that they got in arguments with people when they were called raven mothers, um, or even phrases like career whores to their faces. Um, And so that was really powerful. But to me, it was indicative of this very traditional model clashing with the contemporary reality that a lot of women do want to work outside the home. And in the mid 2000s, Germany initiated a major shift in their policies to resemble a social democratic welfare model, the dual earning and bread uh, dual earning, dual caregiving family model because they were suffering from uh, low fertility rates, from a, a, a skilled labor shortage, and also from maternal and child poverty rates that were higher than other uh, similar countries. And so, from a sort of an instrumental or rational perspective, they implemented these policies. I don't think they were particularly with the goal of gender equality in mind, but the policies today look very similar to a country like Sweden's. And what this means is. That cultural attitudes have not caught up with the policies on the books. Women still report being stigmatized for working outside the home, even though they're encouraged to do so. So for example, they cut parental leave from three years to one year, they went about creating hundreds of 1000s of places for Uh, kids starting at the age of one in their public daycare facilities. Um, And this was, again, meant to facilitate women's ability to engage in paid work when they had young kids. But the cultural attitudes, this cultural lag um, seems to still be pervasive. And in the West German context, it seemed clear to me that women there really felt like they were standing on rocky terrain. They were caught between what were now progressive policies, um, but very traditional cultural ideals. And so this, this ended up again, spurring quite a great deal of guilt and work family conflict for them. And it didn't seem to be the sort of um, dream scenario that I thought it might have been when I first embarked on the project uh, inspired by Pamela Stone's work.
0: Thank you. So then you moved to Italy. And here it was interesting how much economic uncertainty or um, what are called standard contracts um, in Italy become important as well as grandparents. So I was, talking, I was hoping you could talk about the Italian context.
1: Sure. So the Italian context is an interesting one. Like other countries in Southern Europe, it follows this sort of familialist welfare state model, which means that the policies they provide tend to be quite generous for, uh, for example, older folks, pensioners, but are quite weak for um, In other ways that we see more robust in other parts of Europe. So the family is intended to sort of provide the safety net necessary for uh, members of society there. And their policies tend to be quite uh, fragmented across the various regions. And what this often ends up meaning is that women tend to be encouraged to do the bulk of caregiving necessary to keep their families going. And men are encouraged to breadwin. And uh, it, again, is a country that has enormously um, high rates of unemployment and their economy has struggled for decades in the way that many other Southern European countries have. Um, and at the same time, despite this, what we have seen is an increases in women's, um, especially more privileged families, sending their kids to Including women to good schools, and women are getting, um, you know, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, JDs, MDs at higher rates, PhDs, and so the women I talked to in Italy, uh, again, as uh, partially as a result of my need to speak to them in English, were a pretty privileged swath of Italian society. These women were ambitious; they had higher degrees, and they really did want to pursue careers while raising kids. And this was really difficult for them in an Italian context that. Absolutely, still operated around the male breadwinner uh, and ideal worker model. So, for example, I interviewed a woman in Rome who was a professor. And in theory, in Italy, women get five months of paid maternity leave and it's compulsory. So, you have to take it. And you can either take one month before childbirth and four months after, or two before and three after. And that's only paid at 30% wage replacement. And um, then when you go back to work, you're supposed to be able to reduce your working hours by two hours per day, which is meant to encourage women to breastfeed. And this professor that I spoke to had two kids. She had a toddler, and she hired a nanny to be at home with the toddler. And she hired a second nanny to come to her office at, at, on the university campus to take care of her baby, you know, her five month old. Um, And she she told me that she asked the nanny, implored the nanny to stay quiet, to not leave her office, to act as if no one was in there. And if the baby did start crying, to turn music on, to to muffle the noise so that none of her coworkers knew that her baby was in there. And to me that this was indicative of the sorts of very individual solutions that women tended to turn to to resolve their work-family conflict. Um, This is a woman who told me she... Was told she couldn't take those extra two hours a day to breastfeed her kids, even though she asked for it. Um, And turning to the informal labor market to what are very often, in the context of Italy, low income racial and ethnic minority women who have migrated specifically into Italy for the prospect of um, securing a position to serve as a nanny for either children or the elderly is super common. So only one woman of all those women I spoke to in Rome told me that they didn't have a domestic worker, whether a housekeeper or a nanny employed by them, which I found fascinating. So this was a very common solution for middle-class families. Um, And in fact, to them in many ways felt unremarkable. Um, And they were furious at the government for the lack of support that they were given. Women had a great deal to say about their frustration. And to be honest with you, Sarah, like outright outrage at uh, the lack of support they felt they were getting from the Italian uh, welfare state. And in a, in an interesting way, I thought it was really powerful to hear these women talk about what they thought that they deserved but weren't getting. Um, but at the same time, this discourse that the welfare state and the Italian government was sort of irreparably broken seemed to negate the possibility of organizing for social change because they thought it would just always be this way. Um, and similarly, it, it also absolved them from trying to get men more involved in caregiving, for example, or to hold their employers responsible for <laughs> the deeply sexist approaches they had to managing their employer employees. And um to me, that was problematic. And, and and often, again, they outsource not only to domestic workers, but as you mentioned, the intergenerational responsibility of family members to one another is very strong in an Italian context. And so um, in places where the welfare state sort of seems lacking, not only do women outsource to domestic workers, but they very often outsource to other family members, primarily grandparents. And of course, that's primarily grandmothers. And to me, this doesn't do a whole lot to to go about creating equality in the home what it really does is is push the caring labor onto other women whether that is um to an older generation or to um women who occupy positions with far less privilege um some women would admit to me that The caregivers, the nannies they'd hired for their kids um, had children of their own, and they struggled to find care for their own kids while caring for um, those of middle class families. And to me, that was indicative of a welfare state that was absolutely set up to benefit some families um, to the detriment of others.
0: So then you move into the U.S., and here you're interviewing moms in D.C., and you say that they felt an agonizing work-family conflict, and what I thought was interesting, as you point out, it seemed to come at them from all sides. So I was hoping you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, so I end, I was, um, you know, instrumental in my decision to, to, to structure the uh, chapters in this way. I end with the U.S., starting where things were a bit more rosy in Sweden and ending in the U.S., where women seemed by far more exhausted stressed harried and overwhelmed than the women in europe um, italian women would tell you they're more stressed than anyone um, but again they did have <laughs> paid maternity leave they had a ton of job security surrounding pregnancy though that didn't always mean it worked out for them um, they had uh, italy itself has a very robust uh child system that's quite high quality for kids starting at the age of three and so yes italian moms were stressed out but they also had You know, universal health care and this child care infrastructure, as well as paid parental leave opportunities. And US moms don't have any of that. Um, I mentioned the dearth of work family policies at the beginning of our conversation. And to me, we can attribute a lot of mother stress to this lack of policy support. Women today, like I said, here in the States are truly drowning in stress. And I think part of what makes the US context so heartbreaking and also to me quite infuriating is that not only do we have uh, no policies to support families, but again, in the context of the home, women still bear the brunt of the responsibility for the work that is necessary for families to to survive day to day so they still do most housework, most caregiving, and more advantaged families in the u s like Italy do turn to the market and outsource some of this um domestic work so that was one solution I found that was common amongst uh middle class American families but very unlike the Italian case, these moms tended to blame themselves for their difficulty and for their stress. They would tell me that if they just um, learned to be a little more efficient, if they slept a little bit less, if they transferred to a position that offered a bit more flexibility, if they saved a bit more money, if they read the right parenting book, their lives wouldn't be so hectic. And, And to me, this was, again, heartbreaking because Women think it's their own fault that they're really stressed out. And the message of the book that I'm trying to drive home to readers is that it's not. Women are trying the hardest they possibly can already. And their work-family conflict is not of their own making. And I also think it can't be of their own fixing. We need to expect more from from men, from employers, and from the government. And again, we're an outlier in this regard. Um, other liberal welfare states still have more supportive work-family policies than we have. And this idea that we are um, families are a private or personal responsibility really means that they're on mother's shoulders to manage and it has again disastrous consequences in the daily lives of moms so Moms often reported adopting highly individual solutions to help manage their work-family conflict. Like I said, that could mean outsourcing. It could mean hiring um, grocery delivery services or meal prep services for wealthier families. Um, It often meant women transferring to jobs that they were way overqualified for, but um, they gave them the flexibility they needed to, for example, pick their kids up, when school was over, because there was no daycare system they could afford, right? Or women stepped out of the labor force altogether for a number of years to care for kids, especially before they started school. And these to me, again, as Pamela Stone pointed out, feel like deeply forced choices. It's indicative of uh, what sociologist Alison Pugh refers to as this one-way honor system that between employers and employees in the contemporary US labor market where employers expect this sort of undivided commitment and allegiance to them. And workers don't really expect anything in return. Whereas, uh, as we know, in the US economy, more broadly speaking, from a historical perspective, there were a series of labor agreements that meant that families were given, um, you know, wages sufficient to cover a whole family, including an economically inactive partner, um, especially for white middle class families. And that that agreement has fallen apart over the latter half of the 20th century in the US. And what we see again are things like the gender wage gap. We see the uh very unequal domestic division of household labor. We see women again dropping out of the labor force. And it gets having really, really negative consequences, not only for women, but also for for their partners, for their kids, and for their employers and our national economy as a whole. Um, and my hope in writing this book is that it drives home the reality the very clear sense that that policy does have a role to play here, but more robust work family policies are a necessary but insufficient solution to the stress that mothers face today. Um, cultural attitudes need to shift as well. We need men to feel equally responsible, or um, that they have a right to participate equally in family life. Um, We need employers to understand that workers have external responsibilities. And we also need to develop an understanding on a cultural sort of national level, that it's in our best interest for kids to be raised well. And what that requires is paying into a system where we consider kids public goods as our future taxpayers, workers and citizens. And uh, again, raising them well, it, it benefits all of us. And so supporting families better in their ability to combine work and parenting is absolutely crucial and um, to me again mothers are bearing the the brunt of responsibility for this and this means we we need to do a better job um, for these women who deserve far
0: more great thank you so today we've been talking to caitlin collins about her book making motherhood work how women manage careers and caregiving so what are you working on now
1: Well, I'm working on a series of articles that are in various stages of the pipeline on this same project. Um, So, for example, I have a paper about maternal guilt and whether or not guilt is a cross-national experience for mothers. Um, I'm really interested in whether this discourse of intensive mothering travels across national borders. Um, I have a paper about who women tend to blame and how they uh, go about resolving their work-family conflict. Uh, Another one on pregnancy announcements and women's experiences Telling their bosses they're pregnant across these different countries that have very different uh, protections and responsibilities for workers as it relates to disclosing pregnancy. Um, and so that will take the bulk of my year. Um, but I'm also embarking on another ethnographic project um, that will start here in St. Louis and um, I hope will be cross national as well on what I am calling the highly extractive market for childcare, um, drawing on the sort of work of folks like Annette LaRoe and Matt Desmond. Um, we know that. That childcare is kind of the Achilles heel for all families in the US, but we talk very seldom about the childcare context here in the US as a privatized system being, like Matt Desson says about urban housing, this highly extractive market. I think it is highly extractive here in the US. And we know very little about how parents go about finding, securing care for their kids while they work and what the consequences are for different families when that care falls through. Um, and so my project is going to start here in St. Louis by spending time with families, um, uh, who occupy different, you know, positions of privilege on our socioeconomic, uh, kind of structure here in the, in, in the St. Louis region, but also of different, um, races and ethnicities and different family formations. So that's, that's a uh, project number two that I'm embarking on this fall.
0: Great. Well, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to chat, Sarah. Thanks.